Being a dad isn't always easy, but it's the best thing I ever did. I'm constantly improving myself to be the best dad I can be through fitness, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. As fathers, we pass on many things to our children, such as our mindset, our habits, our attitude, and what we've learned along the way. Each of these will shape who our children are and who they will become. The Warrior Dad's mission is to help you become the healthiest version of yourself, to hone your edge, and to live with purpose. My name is Jim Bartomey, and this is the Warrior Dads Podcast. Hey guys, thanks for tuning back in for another episode of the Warrior Dads Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to bring on Tanner Guzzi to the podcast. Tanner is a style expert and the author of The Appearance of Power, How Masculinity is Expressed Through Aesthetics. Tanner has a very successful YouTube channel and blog at masculine-style.com, talking about the importance of style and the three archetypes people fall into. When he's not coaching and speaking on stage, Tanner is spending time with his beautiful wife and four children. Tanner, thanks so much for coming on the Warrior Dads podcast. Dude, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man. You are – I was really excited to meet you at – well, we actually met at the 21 convention Yep. and uh, you spoke on stage uh, about that. And you gave a great presentation, gave a lot of food for thought. And Thank you. I had never met you up until then, but I knew that there was a style guy that was going to be speaking that weekend. And I was really intrigued. <laughs> I'm like, really? A style guy with a room full of men, specifically fathers, right? But most of them, most of them were fathers and some of them were uh, soon to be fathers. Yep. So I'm like, wow, I wonder how this is going to, I wonder how this is going to go. Cause I, I guess when you hear of, you know, style or fashion, you always think of women and, and being in that world. Right. So I was super intrigued by your talk and super excited to get you on, um, on this. And I'm so glad we were able to get, get this going because you are the, it's very unique. I've never had anybody on like you and talk about what we're going to talk about today. So just um, give everybody a, a brief background about you. And, and I guess in, in the background story explanation, um, my first question for you was, have you always been interested in fashion and style? And hopefully that can kind of play into that answer. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Let me break it down. So I'm i uh, I'm based out of Salt Lake city, Utah. And yes, that means I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And no, that does not mean I have multiple wives. So we just get that <laughs> off, the, <laughs> off the bat right away. I definitely would have put that in your intro. <laughs> it's so funny how quickly people's brains go right to those two. And so uh, born and raised here. And I, uh, style has been, okay, so when I, was, when I was a teenager, I had these two conflicting worlds that I lived in because... Uh, being an active member of my church and then also belonging to a private school that was very much built off of the the Christian ideals and kind of the old world idea of integrity and self-respect. And we wore a uniform to school. And then I also, in my free time, I was very involved in, I loved punk music and I rode a BMX bike and a snowboard and it was all about rebellion and, you know, rejecting the man and forging your own path. And so I had these two very conflicting identities. And then also within these two different groups, there were also two very conflicting uniforms. And, you know, in one, it was the gray slacks with the rep tie and the Navy blazer. And in the other, it was the green spiked hair with the safety pins and the band patches all over everything else. And so I started very early on because I dealt with the juxtaposition of these two tribes is the term that I use a lot. And I'm sure I'll say that a dozen times as we go through our conversation today, but these, these two different tribes, these two different identities and realized as I would try to 
fit in with one or not fit in with another or how people would treat me within either one of those based on what I needed to be wearing at a given time, that appearance is something that really matters. And it matters in regards to how you see yourself and also to how other people treat you. And then it's been something that as I've continued to develop my identity over the years, I've gone through changes and, you know, you deal with different stages in your life where you dress differently or you're involved in different careers or things like that. And so it's always been something that's been kind of top of mind. And so I started writing about it about 10 years ago is when I started masculine style because it was something I enjoyed. It was a way to keep my voice sharp and uh, it's resonated with a pretty good audience. And so it's been fun to take it from this hobby and even this kind of cause of anxiety when you're a 13 year old punk kid into something I get to teach men about for, for a living now. It's awesome. That is awesome. So you used to dress, like you said, punk, right? Yeah. So you meant, we, we talk, I know you talk about the archetypes uh-huh. and, I, and I want to, I want you to list out the archetypes, but I'm curious as to which archetype that falls into. Gotcha. Punk. punk is, punk is very rakish. And so, yeah, the three archetypes are rugged, refined and rakish. And for you guys who are unaware of this concept, basically one of the first things that I teach guys as we start talking about appearance and style and this kind of stuff is that the best way to have good style is you take who you are internally and you use your clothing and your appearance to express that externally. Most, most people do the opposite where they think I'm going to buy an identity or I'm going to wear these clothes and that means that this is going to give me a sense of who I am and it should be the other way around. And so the easiest way to start to understand what your identity is and how you fit within the world is, is through these three archetypes. And so the rugged man are guys who they exist in the world primarily through physical means. They're blue collar workers. They're artists and craftsmen who enjoy making things. They enjoy that kind of tangible, natural aspect of the world. And that's how they exert their power. That's how they exist and thrive. The refined archetype is men who understand social hierarchies and finance and ladders and the way that rules work and the way that civilization is built. And you thrive by being able to know those rules and play within them, or at least you aspire to thrive by playing within those rules. And then the rakish archetype are the guys who understand the rules just as well as the refined guys, but they thrive by breaking them and rebelling against them and rejecting them. And so punk very much the rakish archetype because these guys understood everything that were that were the rules before and it was a big middle finger to all of it hmm. so so in each archetype give somebody who's listening an example of like like let's say a celebrity right someone who's well known where they could you could say a name and kind of get an idea of how they dress uh, or what they're what they look like to give people an idea of the rugged look okay the rugged one's kind of hard especially for celebrities because most of the time when you get celebrities, they play them more into the refined or the rakish because we don't have our version of John Wayne or Clint Eastwood or, uh, you know, a lot of guys will think of like Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec or stuff like that. Uh-huh. But sadly, we don't have a lot of guys who are necessarily very aspirational like that anymore because even guys who are muscular and built like The Rock, they still lean them more into their stylists and people still lean them more into kind of the refined and the rakish archetypes. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but maybe, okay. So you said the rock. So maybe like the rock in um, like the fast and the furious movies, that would be maybe a little bit more rugged. Sure. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, maybe what more athletic wear under armor type stuff or. 
that cargo, or you cargo could, pants or you know, <laughs> yes. So the easier way to do it is even to talk about different kind of tribes and tools where it's not necessarily specific celebrities, but you get so more of the rugged stuff would be guys who are uh, the outdoors types, like they're the survivalists or the tactical guys, or it's uh, guys who do work in blue collar industries or they're lumberjacks or they're guys who are still out working ranches and doing that kind of stuff. And there's their entire aesthetics and entire brands that are built around this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you get workwear, military heritage, or all this other kind of stuff. So that's that's more of the rugged. The refined, most of the time, guys think of suits. They think of Wall Street. They think of attorneys or bankers or things like that. But a lot of the refined, you can think of kind of East Coast preppy or, or the waspy aesthetic or that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then rakish is anything from streetwear to punk rock to the super dandies to hipsters to there's so many different ways and manifestations of, of what that rakish archetype is. Now, can you have an overlap? I mean, like, let's say, like you just mentioned the rock, right? Mm-hmm. So where maybe he looks a little bit more um, rugged in certain movies, but then let's say he's going out or something like that. And he wants to throw on a suit. I mean, and of course everybody's like, yeah, of course you can, you can go back and forth, but um, for someone who, even has that rugged side to them. Is it out of character to dress maybe not all the way to a suit, but just like some nice slacks, you know, they even have like these dress shoes that are sneakers now, like Cole Haan right. makes these dress shoes that are basically sneakers. And I don't know, my wife was actually just showing me a pair that she saw on Facebook. It started with an M. I don't know. It's like a, it's a no name to me. I've never heard of uh-huh. before, um, but they're like really nice athletic yeah, like dress sneakers. Yeah, like dress sneakers, exactly. Yep. So it's like, can rugged people wear those? So I love this because there are two different questions. Because <laughs> yes, the first, you know, and I love it because it just means that your brain is kind of you're thinking through this as you're going through it, right? Yeah. So yes, not only can you overlap with multiples, but one, most everybody does, and two, the best styles actually incorporate elements of all three of them. And so it's very rare that you get guys who are super one dimensional, all of them, but most of us have a very different ratio of them where you may be 45% rugged and 30% refined. And then the rest a little bit rakish, you know? And so understanding how you fit within all of those is really good. Not um, all at once though. You're saying, you're saying, no, like certain you, times can. Of the day. you really? can even. Yeah. And so, okay. So let's take this idea of a rugged guy wearing a suit for an example where honestly doing the dress sneakers would lean more towards the rakish than the rugged. But then this is one of the things I did. Uh, this is in the, the intro on my book because I have an uncle who totally embodies the archetype, uh, the rugged archetype. He lives in a small town in Idaho with a population of like 250 people. He's a falconer. So he literally hunts with birds, you know, like just the, the absolute embodiment of what the rugged archetype is. He's a cowboy and everything else. And, um, my grandma, his mom passed away a few years ago and he needed to wear a suit for the funeral. He felt like that was appropriate, especially because that's what she wanted. She had talked about it multiple times when she died. She wanted everybody there in black and the men were in black suits and white shirts and the women were in black dresses wearing pearls. And so he thought out of respect, he needed to do that, but he didn't want to get some fancy Hollywood suit. If I, if I remember right, I think that's how he put it. And so we put him in a black flannel suit. And so flannel has all this texture to it and all this body. And 150 years ago, flannel is what the upper class would wear to go hunting or to do their rugged activities 
but because it's in a suit, then it still ends up being more refined. So it's this really cool contrast of the way the garment is made and the environment in which he's wearing it, it leans refined, but the material, the texture and the original intended use are what added some of that ruggedness. And so the cool thing about it was that, and this is really the, the real power of appearance and the power of style, is it allowed him to feel good about satisfying the desires of his mom as far as what she wanted for her funeral. And at the same time, it allowed him to not feel so goofy or self-conscious, but to be able to feel authentic in what he was wearing so that he could be mentally present throughout the duration of that day, instead of having this nagging feeling in the back of his head of, I just got to get out of the suit as quickly as I possibly can. Hmm. It's like James Bond fighting in a suit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> as long as the fabric works. <laughs> yeah. As long as it works, <laughs> but you'll notice that because you go watch the different Bond films and when he's in different environments, uh, you know, inspector, when they spend all this time in the desert and he's wearing these really light linen suits, or in uh-huh. Casino Royale, and he's got on these really crisp uh, white shirts that are short sleeve button-ups, and then some linen trousers. And so they, they always do a good job with the Bond films of taking his style but making it situationally appropriate while still being congruent with who the man is that's wearing the stuff. Yeah. Because, like, I've seen you in suits, but then I've seen on your videos and your blogs and stuff like that where you're just wearing – you know, you, oh, you're, yeah. you're not, I'm in you're not jeans in a Henley right now. I'm not in a suit today. I don't need yeah, to. But, but you pull it off and you look good. You're not wearing these baggy jeans and, right. you know, with maybe rips in them or something like that. Although that's, that's a, I don't know. I have very fashion for women, rips but in my jeans. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Strategically placed. <laughs> um, if, if the, what is it? If the, if the, if the slits in the knee, then it just looks like they're worn, but if it's on the thigh, then it's okay. Oh, um, <laughs> so how important though, is it for, um, so, sorry. So we know the three archetypes Yep. and you give people a good idea of, you know, maybe where they fit into it. Um, and then maybe even a good idea of how they can actually can combine both of them. But how do you link style and masculinity? Cause I know that's a big, how, how did you eventually come up with that? Or like, you know, like where you're linking style and then also being masculine at the same time? Yeah, that's, I love that question. It's a fun one because so often you hear guys, and I'm sure we've already had listeners right now who, one, may not even listen to the episode because they're like, style guy, <laughs> that's stupid. Or <laughs> they get into this part of the conversation, they're just like, oh my gosh, I do not want to think about the texture of what my suit is and what that communicates because that's so overwhelming and ridiculous. And I just, I'm just going to wear a suit, whatever it's made out of, because that's what I do. And we get caught in this kind of binary of, or this one dimensional way of thinking of one real men don't care how they look or that function is the only thing that matters and form is irrelevant because it's effeminate or it's gay or it's signaling something else or whatever other reason. And there are thousands of reasons that men come up with, but the irony is if you go through, and I do this on both my Instagram and my Twitter feeds constantly, is you go through history and you look at the ways that men have dressed throughout history, and there's always been incredible attention to detail. And ironically, the the class of men who cares the most about their appearance is the warrior class. Almost every single one of the examples that I use, I do this kind of ironic, but real men don't care how they look. And then I post a picture of men who very obviously care what they look like. And 
90% of the time it's warriors from a different point in history or a different civilization or something else. And you think about all the detail that would go into what Roman gladiators would wear or what a samurai would wear or the difference between the eagle and the jaguar warriors in Aztec civilization. Or We use appearance as nothing more than a tool, and it's a communication tool the same way that language is. And so when you understand that I just use this appearance, this tool as a way to communicate things, then it becomes very natural to realize, okay, well, men use it to communicate things that matter in masculinity. We use our appearance to signal things like courage and strength and mastery and honor and all these other kind of tactical virtues, according to somebody like how Jack Donovan puts it. And so men always have, and we always will. And the irony is you get these guys who will say, well, I don't care how they look without realizing that their antipathy for appearance does mean that they care about how they look and they're trying to signal their masculinity through that antipathy. Whereas if they were truly indifferent, they would, they would just wear whatever is in their wife's closet because it really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So what, so what is the message then when you see somebody dressing the way that they dress? Are they just basically letting you know, without without maybe even being able to identify it themselves just because they don't know the lingo, uh, are they just letting you know which archetype they're in? Or are they saying something more? Like when you were in the rebellious stage and you were uh -huh. saying how you were in the punk stage, and then of course you have another another rebellious one that comes to mind is the goth, right? right. What What is the actual message that they're trying to get across? Or are they just being rebels and they just love seeing people look at them weird because they're sticking out from the crowd? So it depends on the audience, because if you're X tribe, if you're not part of the punk or the goth tribe or anything else, then the whole purpose of it is I want you to be turned off by what I'm wearing. I want you to think that this is awful. It's freaky. I don't want you to be attracted to or interested in or see any good in this whatsoever. But then the intra tribal signals are the things that, well, I'm into this band or I'm taking this kind of risk. And so there are all these other smaller signals that demonstrate things like where you fall within the hierarchy or what your status is or what your loyalties are, or do you belong to this micro tribe that's part of the, you know, are you into, are you into pop punk or old school eighties punk? Are you part of the skate punk or the ska movement or anything else? And there are all these little micro signals that come about that, that for somebody who's on the outside, it all looks exactly the same, but for somebody who's on the inside, there's a lot of unique differences yeah. But that only really works within tribes or identities that are very aesthetically based because most of the time, if you walk into an average office, really what 99% of the, the things that men in the, that office are communicating, whether it's an office that requires a suit and a tie or it's a tech office where you can show up in literally anything you want. But really what most men communicate through their appearances, my biggest priorities are one, I don't care how I look as long as I don't look like an idiot. I'm just avoiding looking bad. And two, the thing that matters the most to me is comfort. Hmm. It's always like, it's fascinating to me. Psychology fascinates me. And I did take a course on it in, uh, in college. But when you mentioned that people would wear something just to piss somebody else off, uh -huh. I, I can't wrap my head around the why behind that. Well, think because... about think about it even in a sports context where you wear your favorite team's colors or uniform as a way to identify 
I'm loyal to this team, and therefore I'm not interested in identifying with the other team. Right. So like the Eagles and the Cowboys are playing this weekend, right? There you go. Of course, I'm from Philly and then huge rivalry between the Cowboys. But if I were to show up to somebody's house, yeah, I would support my team. So if you're wearing like a Marilyn Manson T-shirt and this is this is a little bit younger of a conversation. Right. So, you know, the the people who are listening to this are probably like, all right, this is all kid shit. Like, so just move on with it. But I'm just trying to make a point. No, because there's reality to it. We're more we're more unapologetic about it when we're at that age. Right. More unapologetic. But I never understood like doing so. You know, if I if I feel like somebody's uncomfortable in a conversation, I'm not one of those people to just keep, you know, beating that dead horse or or throwing that joke out there just to kind of like keep it going. I'll just like I'll just back off. I'm never the one to keep prodding. And, you know, because I I'm empathetic to that person. Yeah. Instead of rebellious. Right. Instead of rebellious or or just being a jerk. And they're just like constantly like, oh, yeah, I got to keep the joke going or make them, you know, just whatever. But so if I'm wearing an Eagles jersey. I'm not doing it to piss off the Cowboys fans. I'm just doing it to show, you know, hey, this is this is my team. But right. I'm not doing it with the purpose or the intent of, you know, hey, look look at my team. I'm here to piss you guys off. You know what right. I mean? No, so totally. like I ne- yeah, I never I never understood that. But well, I think I don't even... think that that applies too much in the in the well. Hopefully, it doesn't apply too much in the adult or the dad world. No, hopefully it doesn't. But I think one of the things that does apply in the dad world that that is even kind of a deeper manifestation of that because a lot of times the stated reason of those very rebellious tribes is I dress this way as a way to antagonize you and to polarize myself against you so that you don't want anything to do with me. But really it's kind of a preemptive action of if I can get you to reject me on shallow grounds, then I won't feel threatened when you reject me on more meaningful grounds. So it's this method of self-protection. And a lot of dads do do that where, okay, if I can't, if I don't dress in a way that gets people, if I can just play it safe, if I can just gray man myself, then maybe people won't reject me. Whereas if I take a risk and I try and dress really, really well, but I miss and I screw it up, then it becomes very obvious that I've tried. And then I'm setting myself up to be potentially rejected in a much more meaningful way. Wow. That's deep. <laughs> yeah. And that's the <laughs> funny thing. Ma- Cause it's all for a second, right? Cause it is, it's all self-conscious, right? We don't consciously sit here and think, you know what? I'm afraid that people are going to reject me based on my integrity or based on my beliefs or based on my sexual orientation or my idea of what fatherhood is. So I'm going to dress like an idiot so that they can reject. Of course, we don't do it that consciously, but that doesn't mean it doesn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. True. And you know what? This is actually maybe good for, for, for dads that are listening that have children in this rebellious stage, depending on yep. which age group. Right. So maybe if this conversation helps conversation helps them relate or understand what their children are going through, um, maybe there's a conversation to be had there. Totally. I mean, I know that's what it was for me. One, I really liked BMX biking, but two, I really sucked at baseball and it was embarrassing to be afraid of the ball and to step up to bat every time and walk away from every strike because I was worried it was going to bean me. And so you get to this point where, okay, I'm going to sour grapes it. I'm going to resent it. I'm going to, I'm going to reject it. I'm going to hate everything about it. And then I'm going to hate everything about everybody else who does it. Sports are stupid. Athleticism is stupid. And if I can reject these people proactively, then maybe it won't hurt as much when they reject me because they're doing it reactively instead of doing it proactively themselves. I would imagine 99% of teen angst 
is rooted in a fear of rejection. So what's the, what's the remedy for that? What, what are you going to teach your children if you see that pattern for some reason pop up? What's the conversation there to be had? What's the message that they need to hear so that they don't even have to? Because that, that's very methodical, right? right? I mean, that's really like whether they know that they're doing it or not, they're really playing out something pretty intricate there. Absolutely. So, so I feel like that's a lot of wasted effort in the name of being rejected. Yes. So what's the, what's the, again, what's the conversation? What's the message? If somebody's listening to this and like, holy shit, that's my kid Uh that he's talking about or describing, what do they do? So I don't know the answer to that when it comes to teenagers, because I don't know yourself. What do you think would have helped you? Well, I think what would have helped me, the thing that I craved more than anything else the two things that I craved more than anything else were respect and validation. And I didn't get much of that. Mm-hmm. And so had I had the opportunity to be, and I see this in my oldest right now, she's seven and more than anything in the world, she wants to be an adult and she wants to be an equal and she wants to be treated like one. And my wife and I are very conscious of how I felt growing up. And so what we're trying to do is provide her with opportunities where she can do that and reward and validate the crap out of her when she does do things that are worthy of that reward and that validation, as opposed to the only attention you get is when you do something wrong. And then when you do something right, we just treat it like that's what's expected. Then you don't get any, you don't get any sort of attention or validation or anything whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think for me, that's what what I would have really appreciated. And I can think of teachers or church leaders or other mentors that I had that were able to do that for me. And it did wonders And so that's one of the things we're looking at. And then the other thing that we're looking at and we're doing very proactively right now with our young kids is trying to help them understand that failure is a good thing and it's a part of growth. And so we reward their, it's not like reward, like everybody gets a trophy, but we encourage and validate their attempts to do things even when they fail so that they don't see that failure is the problem. It's a, an unwillingness to try and an unwillingness to take the chance or expose yourself to the risk. That's the problem. Hmm. I like that. So that's what we're trying to do, you know, and it's worked great. I, I can raise kids to seven and they can be great kids. I have no idea if it's going to work after that. <laughs> we're going to have to <laughs> wait a few years and see, but I'm pretty good at raising young kids right now. We've got excellent kids, but who knows, right? Yeah. So you said you didn't get a lot of validation back in the day. Was your dad around a lot? My dad was around, but wasn't around? It was more that. My dad's a great person. And the problem with the dynamic of where things were with my parents is my mom grew up in a household where there was no validation whatsoever. And so that was her norm. And my mom is also a bigger personality and a more dominant person in the lives of other people than my dad. She's happy to follow his lead when he's happy to take the lead, but my dad's pretty easygoing and relaxed. And he's also very introverted and just likes a lot of time to himself. And so most of my memories growing up, most of my experience with parenting and everything else had more to do with a much more dominant and kind of larger than life mother than it had anything to do with my dad. Hmm. But because your mom was very assertive and maybe a little bit more Yang. Yeah. How did, how did that, did that help? 
at least? Because if your dad oh, wasn't man. as assertive or I don't know. I mean, we there was a lot of there was a lot of fighting and a lot of rebellion and everything else because of that. Um, there were there were holdovers as a result of that. You know, I could uh, I had dating issues. I've been previously married and I could even look at so much of my first marriage. And the reason I married that woman was because I was trying to finally come to terms with what my relationship with my parents was like. And so it took a lot of it took a lot of personal growth and a lot of kind of break and everything else for me to get to the point where I could, I can see my parents, both their qualities and their flaws for what they are and love and appreciate them as opposed to resenting and rebelling against them or being naive and thinking that they're infallible, which is basically what my childhood was, was they're infallible. And my teenage years were everything about them is awful. Wow. When did it turn yeah. around? Uh, I was or about- did it? Well, I was about 24, 25, and it was realizing that most of the things that they taught me were right, even if I didn't like the way in which they were taught. (laughs) (laughs) It always comes back around to that, right? It always does. And thankfully, they were good about it. And thankfully, I was, I don't know, I've, I've been kind of lucky in a way that my, I'm not threatened now. I was when I was a teenager, but I'm not threatened now by admitting when I'm wrong and when somebody else is right. And so... I've been able to just kind of let all of it go. And now I've got a great relationship with both of them. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So how do you and your wife dress your kids? Yeah, that's a fun question. So <laughs> they're all like, they're well, all my nice. wife's got great taste. No, definitely not. We, uh, one of the things that's interesting about us and you know, it's funny cause this wouldn't have been interesting at any other point in history, but we believe that boys and girls are different and that they should be different. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And so we and dress our girls like girls. There's right? nothing. There's it's beautiful. Nothing. It's complimentary. Oh, Can you imagine playing baseball? If the bat and the ball were the same, if you had to throw and hit with the bat or throw and hit with the ball, it's a no. stupid idea that it somehow is. one is more important than the other because they're different and they're used differently. And right. yeah, men and women are different and boys and girls from the outset are different. And we lean into that with our kids. And so and everybody else's strengths like should be everybody else's strengths and oh everybody's weaknesses should be everybody else's weaknesses. Like oh, it's just hell for everybody. Everybody should just be equally miserable because nobody's allowed to thrive because thriving means that there's difference. What happened to opposites attract? Right? No, it's a joke. It's a joke. And so we're doing our best to, and especially not only for you the know sake what, if, of life, if, if, if opposites rebellion. don't attract, if opposites, female and male, don't attract, <laughs> then they don't have any more male and female offspring. Right. <laughs> right. There's, there's <laughs> no more problem. There's no more humans. If, right. If, if opposites don't attract, there's no more humans. Let's put it, or, or any other species for that matter. But, but except, who cares? Except, except frogs. I think they, th- I think they fig- figured out something that we haven't yet. Stop shaming me into having children because that's just your breeder talk. And I should be able to just enjoy the decline the way that I want to. <laughs> Are there people doing that though? Oh my gosh. <laughs> shaming you for four. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thankfully where oh, we boy. are, not really, but I get people, we get people on the internet and stuff like that who, you know, uh, yeah. And I, it's the internet. It's fun. It's, it's good because it toughens you up and it toughens your skin up. My wife's been making a foray into Twitter over the last year and it's been fun to watch her. It's good to have to defend your beliefs and defend your decisions. So I think it's a, it's a good thing. 
Yeah, I guess it keeps you. You know, I guess looking at the silver lining, I guess it keeps you grounded. And, it does, and, and and you know, you you definitely understand your purpose. Right? Am I doing this for the way right reason, more, or am I yeah. just doing this because everybody else around me is doing it? Right. It forces intentionality. It does. Yeah, yeah. And authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But no, so our kids, we we dress our girls like girls, and we dress our our son like a boy, and my. They're old enough. One, my wife's got great taste, so they always look really good because she just kind of takes points on that. But then my two oldest are old enough. My son, for example, it's funny. We just had a debate with this with my mom last week where she was trying to talk him into not buttoning up his all of the buttons on his on his button-up shirts because he's not wearing a tie. And from her perspective, that looks ridiculous, which is fine because that's the context in which she grew up. But Wait, my she son, wanted him to button up all the buttons? No, she didn't want him to. She wanted him to leave the top button undone. But is my that, son, is that he taboo? loves it. No, oh, not at does. all. Okay. Yep. Right? He loves it. And there's no reason for him not to, especially at seven, right? Right. Or at five. My daughter's seven, especially at five years old. And so we're just like, no, he likes to do it that way. So that's a really good opportunity for him to start to develop some of his own personal taste and his own personal expression and uniform and everything else that isn't – that isn't a major problem in my oldest right now. She came to us the, the other day and she was asking about there are a couple other girls in the neighborhood who are, who are wearing belly shirts. And she wants to wear that because the, she want it, it'll make her feel like she's older. And we're saying, no, you, you can't do that. Cause that's older for the wrong reasons. This and then, girls. right. <laughs> but then, but then it's not, you no, know, because then what she hears is you guys don't want me to look older. And right. so what we, what we then do is what are some other ways that we can come up with together that will help you feel older because you should be able to dress and feel older. That's great. You're not the little kid that you were a couple of years ago, but how do we do it in a way that's still representative of your beliefs about your body and the fact that you're not sexualizing yourself at seven years old and all this other stuff. And so mm-hmm. it's, and we're starting to work with them to help them be more intentional about not only I do this because I like it, but also what are the signals that my clothing sends? Yeah. My son is seven as well. And, um, you know, I've always found it even when he was three and four and that I, I, I was really careful with just saying the word no and having uh-huh. that be the end of the conversation. Yep. I was always really mindful about giving him a reason why, instead of it's just dad saying no again, or mom saying no again. And, to give him a reason why and help him understand it a little bit more. And I think sometimes people don't do that when they're three and four and five is because they think, Oh, they're three, four and five. They're not going to get it. Right. But I, I think, I think that's a a common misconception. It's like, all right, maybe they're not, you know, maybe they won't remember it forever. You know, you definitely have to have the conversation, but I, 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 I can't believe that they, that they don't get it at all. And right. I feel like we've, we've got such a great relationship with our son because we've never been those parents to be like, no, done. Well, and you're, you're training you know? them to start to look for the deeper reasons behind things. Right. You know, yep. ask why, ask the questions, you know yep. what I mean? And so that's good. So, but <clears throat> so well, wait, mentioned... before we move on, cause yeah. there's, I do have a caveat to that because we're that same way too. But one of the things that we've run into is then you can set the precedent of mom and dad have to defend themselves to me, or I only have to do something because I perfectly understand why. And so you can set your kids up to think that they're omniscient little beings. And if they don't get why it doesn't need to be done. 
And so one of the things that we've tried to do with our kids, and again, who knows that this is going to work because we're all just learning as we go, mm-hmm. but because our kids are, you know, most kids are naturally very good at asking why. So I need you to go do this. Why? And then we'll say, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, okay, dad, how come? So it's, yes, I'm willing to do what you're telling me to do. And I want to know the reason why not. I'll, I'll do what you tell me to do when you prove to me that there's a valid reason behind it. Your reasoning is sound. And then this is just justifiable behavior justifiable behavior on my part right there's no there's no nothing wrong with wanting to know why but you have to be on board with it already right don't be challenging me to know why especially at five or seven or anything else but please be curious to understand why right because that's how you get thrown in your room locked up and thrown away the key yep (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that's when the because i said so comes out oh man yeah um which is really just our ego, you know, being right. challenged. And so now that gives you more work to work on for yourself. But you mentioned that your kids always look good. And I, and I, so this is, this is a twofold. So I, I'm actually asking this for myself as well, but I'm curious cool. because it is, it has to do with kids because, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm very active with my job. You know, I see clients in person and, you know, so mm-hmm. if it's a training session or it's a coaching session, I don't have to be extremely active in a coaching session, but if it's a training session or something like that and I'm, and I'm showing somebody a move or I have to demonstrate something or I'm helping them with something, then I, I need to be flexible. Right. But I, I wear jeans that are, you know, stretchy that have give to them. I wear, yep. you know, shirts that have some give, not like this, like skin tight, stretchy shirts, but like, you know, they're just cotton. Yeah. We've got some range of motion. Right. But yeah. I, I feel like, all right, so because I'm, I'm, as you were talking about the archetypes, I'm thinking like, all right, where does that fall into? Because it could be like somewhat rugged, but then it could be, you know, it's definitely There's not a, lot a of suit. refinement in there, too. Yeah. Yep. So with kids, though, because I'm really big in functionality, right? So I have mm-hmm. to be able to function in my environment. And as a dad who, me, as who also loves self defense, I'm kind of like, ready at the drop of a hat for anything to go down. You know I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty prepared guy and, and all this stuff. So I'm like, all right, so how do you be functional, but then also look the right way. So you kind of, so you kind of want to blend in to a certain extent. Right. But then you can have a little bit of uh, like you mentioned the gray man, I think you called it. Uh huh. So, you know, you don't want to draw too, too much attention to yourself, but at the same time, you don't want to like, you don't want to walk out of the door looking like this tactical dude. Right. Because right. then it's like, dude, what, what did the guy just get off the battlefield or, you know, yeah. what, what, what's One, he doing? One, the social signals are all backwards. And two, you actually make yourself a bigger target, right? Right. And then so I'm thinking more like footwear too. Like, so I just wear sneakers, but then we were uh-huh. talking about those like dress sneakers too. So how do you dress a kid who wants to run around and play? Maybe you come around a playground or you go over somebody's house and you want the kid to look nice, but then you also want them to be able to function in the environment and you know because i've seen kids wearing like super tight jeans that are like yep. you know like slim fit i'm like dude the can't even, the kid can't even run around or you know <laughs> if, if he does it's like hanging down and his, and his ass is sticking out right so i'm like how do you balance those two with kids and adults great question okay so one the the problem that a lot of guys deal with and you've even alluded to this as you were kind of breaking it down is we have this assumption that good style means formal style and so i can't look good or look nice if i'm not in jeans and a t-shirt if i you know i want to be more dressed up and you can absolutely look great and look better and more stylish than most guys if you're in jeans and a t-shirt and a pair of sneakers but they're made out of quality material they fit the way that they're supposed to 
the colors work between everything and you're making it out of like classic materials or something like that. And so not all jeans, sneakers and t-shirt outfits are created equal. And, you know, we could see the same thing in a suit. There's a big difference in how James Bond wears a suit versus how Michael Scott from the office wears a suit. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing with jeans and a tee. Where it's right? like more fitted, right? Uh-huh. It's not like, or jeans, they're more maybe a straight fit, maybe not a slim fit, but they're straight exactly. fit instead of like a carpenter jean. Yep. With like, or with if like it's a, a boot slim cut. fit, it's got some nylon or some elastine or something so that it's still got a good range of motion to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. which is which is why, I mean, I get these jeans from Costco. I think they cost me like 15 bucks, but they look, I mean, they, they're like a dark wash, mm-hmm. but they got stretch, but they look nice. You know what I mean? Right, right. And I figure for 15 bucks, you can't beat that but i mean but you're talking about like good material so yep. when i when i hear good material when i think good material especially because some of my family being italian were tailors i'm thinking cool. like more expensive clothing you know more and that like, may be the case yeah but your cost per wear can also be very different too because if you go get a good pair of salvage denim maybe it has some some stretch to it or something else and you pay 80 or 180 bucks for a pair of jeans but they look better, they feel more comfortable, they have better range of motion, and you can wear them for five years as opposed to a pair of $15 jeans from Costco that you're replacing every six months or every year. Mm-hmm. Then you not only get a different kind of cost per wear, but then you also get the unquantifiable benefits of does this look better, does this send better signals to other people, to me. So there's there's a lot of a lot of factors that go into something like that. That's cool. Yeah. So and it's so, the same thing, right? Yeah. And so honestly, okay. So for our kids, cause yeah, it's the same where, oh man, it would be so cruel if our kid, like if I just made my son wear a sport coat everywhere because well, <laughs> dad's a style guy and you have to be stylish. Right. Right. <laughs> but so for example, one of the things that we do with our kids is there's just no graphics or logos on anything. You know, huh. it's not, it's, it, you keep your color palette pretty simple. You, it's a lot of neutrals where it's grays, whites, blues, browns, blacks, that kind of stuff. It's not these big, bold, garish colors. And our kids don't feel like they're missing out on anything by not being able to wear their Paw Patrol shirts or their Mario Party shirts or whatever else, because they don't even have a desire to do that. They can, they can be expressive through other things, but then they do look really good. And so even if they show up, you know, my son's in wrestling right now and his, his t-shirts and gym shorts are just simple and they don't have big Under Armour or Nike logos or anything else like that. We bought them from Zara. And so there's no branding or no logos or anything else like that. And he looks different than all the kids, even though he's just as comfortable and has just the same range of motion and everything else that, that all the other boys out on the mat do. Hmm. So you mentioned Zara, cause I'm thinking to myself, like, all right, even if you go to like polo or tommy hilfiger like they're still going to have a little logo on the chest or right or something like that but you, you guys don't do any of that huh no no we avoid that as much as possible and honestly i think 99 percent of the stuff that my wife buys for the kids is from zara my wife went to a zara and i've never been in a zara i've, I've we have one in um the king of prussia mall which is you know one of the biggest malls in the country um if not the biggest now and uh my wife went to a Zara in Greece and said the clothes were like ridiculously expensive, but this was over 10 years ago. So right. it might yep. be different because then one of my, one of my clients had something that was Zara on and she was like, yeah, actually it wasn't that bad. No, so Zara is like, huh. now kind of, they're a step above like an H&M or a Forever 21, but it's not like a Neiman Marcus or even a Nordstrom or something else like that. It's real. And again, you know, there's some people who will kind of balk because I would say throughout the year, 
that, but again, this, this is what matters to us. We probably between our four kids, we probably spend somewhere between eight and 1100 uh, every season. So like fall, winter, spring, summer. So we're probably at like two, two grand, 2,500, somewhere in there a year on clothes for them. And, but the other nice thing is that my two youngest daughters can still wear the stuff that my oldest daughter wore because one, the quality is higher and two, it's not dependent on specifically what her identity was. And so they've got big wardrobes to be able to play with. So yeah, you do spend a little bit more, but it's not like we're, you know, five figures deep on wardrobes for our kids. Right. How often do you go shopping for yourself? That's what's funny is for me at this stage, not very often anymore. The only times I'm buying new stuff for me is if I'm going to a speaking engagement because I need to wear something that I haven't already been seen on stage with. But other than that, maybe if I see something cool that I like, but I, it's funny that the power of a personal wardrobe, most people don't understand. I have three pairs of pants that I wear 90% of the time. I have about five shirts that I wear 90% of the time. And I've got a massive wardrobe for all these other kind of special occasion things. Mm -hmm. But my day to day is pretty dang simple. And what's nice is I don't have to put in any more mental energy into how I look than anybody else when it comes to like what I'm putting on in the morning. But I also get to walk outside and feel really confident and know that I look good every day. Yeah. So what's one of the things before, before we get to, uh, before we get to the end here, what's the, what's the one piece of advice that you always find yourself giving guys around style? And maybe it's this piece of, maybe it's the piece of advice right after they maybe roll their eyes or have that, like you were saying earlier, <laughs> kind of like, Oh, like what are we talking about? Like we're talking about style or something like that. What's the one piece of advice that you give them that, that, that shifts their mindset there. And they're like, Oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, Oh, that's a really good point. And maybe that's something that they're going to run with, or then they hire you as a coach or, Yep. Whatever that is. Context is king. Most, uh, most guys, as soon as they realize that I, I can't wear what my wife wears because then, Oh crap, I do actually care how I look. Otherwise I would be fine wearing a dress or a trash bag or a Snuggie or a pink gorilla suit. They realize the context matters. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that same advice works from the guys who, cause you do, you get a lot of guys who get really into style and they will say that, you know, fit is king or that it, you have to wear a suit in order to be stylish. And we all need to dress like we're Cary Grant. And it's a tragedy that we don't have gentlemen who dress the way that we used to anymore. And it's like, okay, was, would Caesar be saying the same thing if you were to teleport him from when he was alive to the 1700s or to 1940 and say, it's a tragedy that all these men have lost their dignity and they're not wearing laurel leaves anymore. Right. It's it's so funny how we can get so hyper focused on one point in time and think that was it. That was the pinnacle. And so context matters. Right. What you do for a living, a suit every day is a stupid and a terrible idea. And anybody who recommends that you have to wear that in order to have your style be a good tool for self-expression is a moron and you shouldn't be listening to him. Right. Like Barney, so, like Barney Stinson from uh, How I exactly, Met Your Mother. Exactly. Exactly. He wears right? a suit to bed. Right? He's got those suit jobs. Oh, man. That's such a oh, good show all the time. That is a show. great show. And they do a good job with his character kind of leaning into all that because it can, it illustrates how comical it is, but understanding context, understanding who you are, how you fit within the world, how you aspire to fit in the world, what kind of signals your audience needs to have communicated to them, what kind of signals you want to send to them. Most importantly, what are the signals you want to send to yourself? 
when you can understand all of that, then it becomes relatively easy to be able to create a sense of style that looks really, really good on you and is one that you feel awesome when you're wearing it every day. Mm. That's awesome. I like that. Tanner, this was a great conversation, man. Thanks. Yeah, it's fun to talk about this stuff. And you've had some really good questions. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't just think of them all on the fly. I definitely had these some of these planned and ready to go. <laughs> locked and loaded. Um, yes, sir. But we got a couple questions for you before you leave. Um, as with every episode, I end with 10 questions inspired by James Lipton and Bernard Pavot. So you ready to go? Let's do it. All right, man. Who is your hero? Okay. There's some religious context to this, but his name is Captain Moroni. He's a character in the Book of Mormon, and he was able to be masculine in all of the positive ways without being brutal or bloodthirsty or anything in any of those regards. He's the epitome of a man who is good at being a man, but also a good man. Nice. What excites you? Self-development. Whether it's me challenging myself to something new i committed to i'm running and i'm doing an iron man this year and that terrifies me but it excites me and then even more importantly when i see my kids get better when i see them push themselves and level up and especially when they do it in ways where i'm not prodding them or goading them into it but they just decide i'm going to do this new thing because it's challenging and i'm just going to be brave and do it anyway i don't think there's anything that gets me fired up more than that nice what turns you off complacency the idea or the mindset that who i am today is good enough i have arrived and i don't need to do anything else or, or become anything else and the only thing that matters for the rest of my life is can i be comfortable with where i am hmm. what's your favorite sound oh that's a good question <laughs> thank you <laughs> I don't know. That's a great question. I've never thought about that before. Okay. The first, uh, this isn't the first thing that comes to my mind, but when I think about even just like an emotional response to sound, it is light rainfall on a tent when I'm camping. Mm -hmm. And especially knowing that I get to sleep in, <laughs> I can just listen to that for as long as I want to. <laughs> <laughs> What is your least favorite sound? Traffic. Like I hate the sound of cars. I hate the sound of honks. I hate the sound of just, I love, I love, my wife is kind of almost even obsessed with the idea of man's ability to conquer nature and industry and things like that. But some of it is just so brutal and soul-sucking. And I work from home. I don't deal with traffic anymore. And so when I hear horns or I hear the freeway or anything else, it just makes me feel like I'm trapped in a cage again like I was five years ago. Hmm. What is your favorite quote or saying? No success can compensate for failure in the home. I like that. Who said that? That is from uh, David O. McKay, who is, uh, he was one of the leaders of our church. Yeah. Back in the fifties. Nice. Yeah. In a couple words, what should a dad be? A dad should be an aspirational figure. He should be the caliber and quality of man 
that his sons want to grow up to be like, and that his daughters want to grow up to marry. That's awesome. And in a couple of words, what should a dad not be? That's a harder one. <laughs> a dad should not be a dad should not be the reason that his children don't have a sense of who they are or how they fit in with the world. If you could try any other profession, what would it be? Talk radio. And fine. I would love to host a big show. Yeah. <laughs> it would be it would be so fun. Yep. And finally, what would you like to be remembered for? By my, by my family or by the rest of the world? In general, because your family is going to be part of the world. They will be, yeah. I want to be remembered as a man who was willing to do hard things and was capable of inspiring and inviting other people to do hard things with him and wasn't complacent in just accepting the world for the way that it is, but also wasn't resentful in doing it out of a sense of anger or rebellion or rejection, but doing it out of a sense of optimism and enthusiasm for what could be built. That's great. I'm sure that will happen. That's what I'm working for, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> These are great questions. I love that. Thanks, man. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the Warrior Dads podcast. Tell everybody where they can find. We, we mentioned masculine-style.com, right? Make sure there's a dash yep. in there. So masculine-style.com. Um, where else can people find out uh, more about you? Uh, tell them about the book, uh, anything that you have coming up as far as speaking engagements, programs that you're doing. Where can people get more information about you? Cool. Okay, so the book is The Appearance of Power. You can find that on Amazon, and uh, it's available in paperback and Kindle. There's an audible version, and you can hear my sweet dulcet tones as I read that to you. Um, the uh, As far as speaking engagements are concerned, I'll be speaking at Menfluential in Atlanta at the end of February, and then I will be keynoting the 21 Convention Patriarch Edition in May in 2020 as well. And then as far as regular interaction with me and stuff like that, I'm most active on both Twitter and Instagram. And those are at Tanner Guzzi, which is T-A-N-N-E-R-G-U-Z-Y. Awesome. So that's cool. That's cool that you actually did the audio book. Yeah, it was fun. I like doing that process. It was, uh, it was a blast. Yeah. I've listened to some audio books where the author actually narrated it. And I think that there's there's definitely a lot of benefit with that because it's their story and they, they get it. Yeah, they get it. And they're, they're telling it in the way that's almost meant to be read. So I, I like exactly. that. That's awesome that you did that. Cool, man. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. I love everything that you said today and um, you know, I'm sure everybody else did as well. And uh, maybe we'll do a part two at some point. I'd love to. It, it feels like we we were just getting started. So thanks yeah. for having me on. Love the questions. It's been it's been awesome. And I love what you're doing. Warrior Dads is such a there's there's just such a need for men to understand that we are we are. You can be a dad and recognize that part of it is it's not just being nice to your kids. You got to help them defend themselves too. It's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, appreciate it, dude. All right, bye. 
As warrior dads, we got to tackle a lot of things, but tackling low testosterone levels should definitely not be one of them. Uh, we need to keep our testosterone at peak levels, and that is absolutely crucial for all of us. So I'm sure you know all the horrible things associated with low T levels. If you don't, it's definitely not pretty. Uh, it's Google search away. But unfortunately, testosterone levels in men have been consistently decreasing over the last two decades. And it's actually one of the biggest conversations I have to have when working with men, which is why I decided to create the Warrior Dads Testosterone Booster Guide and Checklist. It's a free download. And all you have to do is go to checklist.warriordads.com. Uh, just download it, start, start implementing it, and start to feel the difference. So again, go to checklist.warriordads.com and get your free copy now. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Warrior Dads podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please subscribe, leave comments, and share it with someone you think would benefit from listening as well. Thanks again and keep on being a warrior dad.